Oh, yeah, coming at you live from the CSB studios in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey on EM. TR Radio Network. This is the Passball Show, of course, brought to you by JohnPLE.com. We're finishing up uh, first hour. Very good job by Don Slott, Mike Hargrove uh, being part of the show. And, you know, definitely getting in on some good stuff. I mean, we talked about Don Slott's catching. We talked about Mike Hargrove and his experience with the, uh, the 10-cent beer night in the Cleveland game when he was playing for the Texas Rangers. But, listen, as we're moving on, we're trying to get into uh, really really the best part of the season. And I, like I said, this is one of those spots where no uh, no team doesn't really have a chance at this point. But we're going to put that on hold. We're going to welcome in um, MLB uh, Fan Cave winner April Weitzman. April, are you there? Yes, hey, how's it going? Uh, it's all right. How are you doing today? Thanks for having a couple minutes. Yeah. No First, we're gonna we're gonna start out. Tell us a little bit about you know your your interest in the MLB fan cave, and I know you I know you were very competitive and wanted to be part of it last year. Tell us tell us a little bit about your your interest and what kind of drew you to this whole thing. So as you mentioned, I did apply last year and I didn't get in. So I spent the year um, after I graduated from university. I went to work for a baseball team in London, Ontario and spent the summer doing that, and I thought that was going to be my way in into working in baseball and working in the industry. But unfortunately, uh, the team folded, so that didn't happen. So when the opportunity came to apply again, uh, my passion for the Blue Jays and passion for baseball in Canada just overwhelmed me, and uh, sure enough, I applied again and really didn't think much of it. Say and show them some work I've done before. And sure enough, two, three weeks after applying, I was told that I made the top 50. And from there, they were told just to promote ourselves the best we can and try to make top 30. We were asked to get votes. And it was just overwhelming. I heard lots of support. It was just unbelievable. It was, you know, I'm still honored and shocked by it all. So essentially from there, long and behold, they made top 30. And the top 30 were flown into Arizona, where we took part in some spring training initiatives. And the 30 of us all got together wonderfully. It was just absolutely fantastic. Did some competitions, did some videos had lots of fun, and long and behold, back to Canada I went. And then after a few weeks of deliberation, I got a call when I was sitting at work, and honest to goodness, I, I wasn't expecting it, but they, they told me that they would be honored to have me representing Canada and the Blue Jays in the fan cave. Had about four or five days to quit my job, pack my bags, you know, leave my apartment, and uh, move to New York City, where I am right now, and I'm 
sitting in front of, you know, 20, 30 televisions right now watching baseball, baseball, and more baseball. So nah, it's an unbelievable experience, and I'm, I'm so blessed. No, nah, that, that's awesome, man. I, and, like, that's something that's got to be exciting to be part of. Uh, tell us a little bit about what, what uh, your, your job now at the MLB Fan Cave entails, the kind of stuff that you're doing, and what, what you kind of get to do on a regular basis now. Sure. Myself and the other eight individuals are asked to find ways to interact with the baseball community. So right now we're blogging on a day-to-day basis. We're tweeting about every baseball game that's going on. We're doing vines. We're using social media. We're making videos. We're doing player interactions. Players come here to hang out, and we do some videos with them. Yesterday the Podges were in town. They came and hung out with us. It was There's going to be a video up there. It's absolutely fantastic. So it's just a lot of baseball, baseball, and more baseball, and we're just trying to find new ways to interact with the, the, a new audience. So essentially here at the Fan Cave, there's so many wonderful things. We've got a home run slide that we all slide down for each home run. We've got a new art gallery that's going on here. So right now, Mr. Brainwash is featured, and there's some beautiful pieces there. We also have this really, thing, really cool thing called the Mission Control, okay. and Breakfast made this. And what it is is that it shows every statistic per game, and per year, so we can see how many strikeouts the Blue Jays or the Yankees and the, or the Mets have right now. We can see you know, even what the temperature is right now and, and from then on and there. So it's really fantastic, and uh, we're just loving baseball every hour of the day. Uh, and absolutely. Once again, this is John Piel. I'm here with April Weitzman of the MLB Fan Cave. Now, uh, you know, kind of, kind of getting yourself to this point, obviously you've you had a lot of experience. You've done a lot of writing and stuff like that. Did, did you have was there a certain point that you you realized that you wanted to really kind of go for this was this something that you've thought about for you know the last couple of years or did one day it just kind of hit you to say listen I'm, maybe I should try to be part of the fan cave working in baseball has always been my dream since I was you know five years old growing up I was the only girl on the guys baseball team for about four <laughs> or five years because um, there was no girls team back there so I I shaved my head I had a mushroom cut and I just played I loved I loved baseball and, uh, you know, when I hit my teens, I realized I could no longer do this. I uh, developed into more of a female, and uh, I realized that making the major leagues probably wasn't going to be realistic for me, being that how things are now. So I turned to writing. Um, I turned to writing. I, I write for Blue Jays Prospects. I started my own site, uh, jaysprospects.com. I started working for baseball teams, started doing some PR for the Blue Jays on my just trying to help when I was when I was doing it in university to do some free social media for them. Um, so working in in the industry is always something I wanted to do. And when something as amazing as the fan cave came along, there was no doubt in my mind that that was something I wanted to do. Man, no question about it. And listen, you've you done a phenomenal job with it. And listen, uh, you know, is is there any goals that you have being part being part of this now? Is there anything that you haven't accomplished with this that you're looking to kind of finish off before uh, before your time's done? Sure. So there's two main things before either the end of the season or before I'm eliminated. And one is to become more credible in the baseball world. I just want to build more of a network and just be able to engage with more and more baseball fans. Uh, that, that's very important to me. Back, east, and back, back in eastern Canada, there wasn't that many baseball fans. So being a baseball fan out east was, was kind of lonely. And now I feel like I'm, I'm interacting with thousands and thousands of baseball fans. And in the future, I just want to interact with more. And the second thing is I just want to put Canada back on the map in terms of baseball. A lot of people have this like stereotype that we're all hockey or all curling or even lacrosse. <laughs> and I really want to show to people that baseball is alive and well in Canada. And, 
you know, we have some big name guys coming up. We've got even after Michael Saunders' game, you know, in the WBC, that's starting to put Canada back on the map. And it's just stuff like that that I'm trying to promote more. In each of my blogs, I try to make them Blue Jay centric and also Canada centric, just to show to people that you know, baseball is alive and well in Canada. So that's one of my main goals while I'm here. Uh, no question about it. Once again, it's John Piel. I'm here with MLB Fan Caves, April Weitzman. Now, do you think, and, I, and I'm going to ask your opinion on this, do you think that maybe baseball in Canada kind of lost something once the uh, the Expos moved back to the States? <laughs> it's hard to mention the Expos without me starting to cry. Uh, <laughs> no, I used to be a diehard Expos fan. My father's one of the biggest Expos fans till this day. Um, but it's really hard to say whether or not it played a huge factor. Um Montreal really didn't sustain the team as well as they could have. And near the end, when the team knew that they were going to be folding, sure, thousands and thousands and thousands of people showed up, but it's really tough. What is good is that nowadays more people are passionate about it. More, there, there was independent teams in London. There's independent teams in Edmonton. There's independent teams in Quebec. You know, so those teams are doing well. The Blue Jays' farm system is now in Vancouver, Canada, and every prospect I interview tells me how much of a big league city and how fantastic baseball is there. So there's, it's tough to wonder what I think as a whole it, it didn't harm baseball in Canada. I think the Blue Jays stepping up and now becoming Canada's team will almost, it will probably help Canada actually because now people know where to turn. There's not, do I turn to Expos? Do I turn to the Blue Jays? There's one team to be supporting. Um, do I miss the Expos dearly? You better believe it. Um, but I also now really love my Blue Jays and support them 100%. Yeah, no question about it. Now, do you feel, do you, do you feel that Canada, let's say, as a country, is in a position to maybe take on another major league team over the next several years? I absolutely think they do. But, again, it's, it's one of those things where can Canada handle two teams? Um, there's definitely the market for it. People don't realize how big of a market the Blue Jays are. And like I mentioned, Vancouver – Vancouver could handle it. If, if it wasn't a Nat Bailey Stadium, uh, Vancouver could definitely handle it. They had a big league stadium. They had a triple-A team for the longest time, and they, they found much, much success both in, both in attendance and both in terms of the team they put on the field. So I think that says a lot. I think there's different teams, you know, they even do the same thing about, you know, different, even football coming to Canada. It's the same thing. It's, it's just finding the market. Um, but, yeah, I, I have every belief that another team could work, but, but Canada needs to find it, its voice in baseball before that happens. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I, I think, I, obviously, Canada has a lot to offer. And if you look at the history of both the, both the Jays and the, and, the, and the Montreal Expos, they, 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 there is a lot of baseball to be said in Canada. Do you think that, and I, and I know this is going to, I, I kind of know the way this question is going to go. Do you, do you think there's ever a chance that baseball in Canada can ever compete with, with the way hockey is in Canada? Oh, my goodness. You know what? I think if the 1994 strike didn't happen, um, this wouldn't even be a question. Um, yeah. You know, it would have changed the baseball in Canada completely. But right now, there is the pride of hockey. It is it, The only funny thing about hockey is that 
somehow lacrosse is our na- is our national team, is our national sport, which still boggles my mind <laughs> because we're just known for hockey. But um, you know, I think it's the fact that there are so many teams across Canada, and I don't think there's a, a little boy growing up that doesn't want to play hockey. So I think there's a lot of things that have to change before it becomes that huge. I think baseball will always be America's pastime, but I do think that in the coming years, Canada will definitely give um, give America something you know something to talk about. I think um, Canada Canada is becoming more and more dominant in, in baseball, and I'm looking forward to the future. Yeah, absolutely. And once again, this is John Piel. I'm here with April Weitzman. Now, a- April, I'll get I'll give you a couple a couple seconds here. Tell us tell us why you should uh, you deserve to end up winning the MLB Fan Cave this year. Essentially, I I just love baseball, and I think that's what's the most important part of this whole fan cave experience. This really isn't supposed to be seen as a competition between myself and the other dwellers, but a way that the nine of us can come together and promote baseball, and that's really all I want to do. Right now, I've got about 7,000 Twitter followers that are just about as passionate of baseball as I am, and I hope to develop that network and develop more people in my network just to you know, share the love of baseball, and that's really what I'm here to do. I think that uh, I've got I've got the skills, and I just look forward to engaging with other baseball fans. Now, listen, great great job, April. Appreciate you having on the show. Hopefully, I could get you on the show sometime in the near future. Talk a little more baseball, and keep up all the good work with everything you do with the writing and the fan cave and everything like that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right, take care. That yeah, was April Weitzman, and of course, that MLB fan cave is a. Uh, Kind of an open competition, that, you know, set up to a lot of uh, a lot of writers, mostly in the younger stages, and they kind of get together and they they network. And what they're able to do is they get themselves to a point where they try to promote themselves, and they end up getting selected. And I tell you, it's a it's a real long, grueling process. And you know, I followed you know April for a lot of stuff that she posts about Blue Jay prospects and stuff like that. And she does a phenomenal job. And you know, it was great having her on a little bit today to talk about that, the whole process with everything going on with the MLB fan cave. And, you know, really what I what I'm kind of jealous of is the fact that she's out, she's out there with, you know, obviously the other, uh, the other cave dwellers and uh, really gets a chance to kind of just meet and interact with players on a, you know, an everyday given basis. And I think that's a phenomenal job and something that's certainly, listen, you, you, you give credit where credit's due. I mean, phenomenal job there. So, you know, great spot by April. And once again, John Pielli passball show and, and we're kind of getting ourselves in, man. We're kind of getting ourselves ready for what's going to be a long season here. And, you know, we talked about on the last couple shows where I was giving my predictions of what I thought about certain teams and where other teams are going to go and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I, I went over, and I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it real quick with my division winners. In the AL West, uh, you know, I had the, um, the Angels. The Central, I had the Tigers. The East, I got the Blue Jays. Two wild cards being the Royals and the Cleveland Indians. On the NL side, I got the the Phillies winning the NL East, the Reds winning the NL Central, and the Dodgers, the Dodgers winning the NL West with the two wild card teams being the Nationals and the Braves. And you know the the funny part about this is everybody could have so many different views, and in the end, you don't really know how it's going to be. And I, and I'm not going to get back to my point of the first hour where you know I'm just kind of getting on people for just all of a sudden just saying that teams have to be in a certain order because of the way they finished last year. Let's understand one thing, and Baseball Perspectives always does a phenomenal job when it comes to rating teams and ranking them uh, over what they think wins are going to be every year. They're never right. 
And it's not it's not any fault of baseball prospectus. It, it isn't. I mean, they, they go the logical route and they usually rate teams based on what what the strongest teams are to what the weakest teams are. And they factor in what happened the year before a lot more than I think they really should. And the way it comes down to teams always surprise the 69 Mets, for instance, you know, if, if baseball perspectives was around back then, they, they would have had them probably finishing in last place. Or maybe they give them a little a little bonus and think they could finish ninth or eighth. Uh, you know, the, pro- the, prob- the problem is it never turns out that way. And you never know what team's going to kind of come out of the woodwork. You never know what team, even that team that you ruled out a couple of years ago, uh, what, you know, how much that team has left. Because you always look at the pace. You always look at the foundation and the way, the way a team has built itself up to the top. And, and I'm going to use the Philadelphia Phillies for an example. And I'm not going to kiss the Phillies' ass at all. I, because they they have very they have weaknesses they they're probably dropped from the way they were a couple of years ago and and I think if you made the case that the Phillies were as good as they were let's say two three even four years ago when they were winning the World Series and NL pennants I, I think you can make the case that they're probably not as good top to bottom now listen disagree with it agree with it uh, that's fine but the Phillies are an example of the team that's been there. For you know, last several years, the five straight NL East titles, the World Series, the NL pennant in 2009, uh, you know they 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 drop off. They have an 81 and 81 season, a, a season that certainly had a lot to do with injuries. You look at Ryan Howard, you look at Chase Utley, Roy Halladay was certainly the big blow to that team, and the team started fading after the Halladay injury. And you you move yourself forward to this season. I don't think there's any reason that you have to say that they are definitely on a decline. Because, number one, you look at Howard and Utley, they're healthy. They were not healthy for the first half of last season. And the fact that they're healthy and playing well and certainly giving you something over maybe the best of what they can give right now, I think that's got to be considered a bonus. And, and like a lot of people get into when they're talking about teams kind of on the drop, they talk about, the let's say, the Mets of 2006. They, they make it, you know, within a couple outs away of going to the World Series that season. They have the September collapse in 2007, and they never get back to that level. And you'll find that more often than not, teams that have a little bit of a ride and then they have the decline, they never get themselves back up without kind of totally blowing it up. And the, I think the problem with what you want to say about the Phillies is that people have that perception. And people expect the Phillies, now that they finished 81-81 and 81 in the 2012 season, to break the thing down and shut it down before they rebuild the thing back up. And I don't think it has to happen that way. Because you look at some of the things that happened with the Yankees, how they kind of they retooled themselves through the better part of the 2000s. I mean, yes, they had the nucleus, they had the core, the, the Jeters, the Posadas, the Mariano Riveras, the guys that were there from the beginning of the run. They were still around, but they also had some Scott Brocious retired. And I know those guys weren't considered to be the greatest or the absolute nucleus of the team or the absolute they nucleus of the team. Part. They, they, they had the very big part, part throughout the, the winning late 90s. They end up kind of switching it up, bringing in a Jason Giambi, bringing in a Mike Mussina. And, yes, the results weren't there. They didn't win another World Series with those guys, but they continued to retool. They end up adding A-Rod, and as much as Yankee fans right now probably hate A-Rod, he did win them the World Series in 2009. They would not have won it in 2009 without Alex Rodriguez. 
And it, they, they switched the team up, and they are the example of the team that continued to retool itself and, and made themselves playoff ready year after year. And in, in some essence, we're kind of the exception to the rule. And while, and while you may want to go out there and say that it had to, you know, the team had to have a collapse, had to go back down and rebuild and start over, they didn't do it. And they sustained a lot of success throughout the better part of the first decade of the 2000s by continuing to retool. And, and that may not be the, that they may, may not be the norm, but it just shows that that could happen. And I could see the same thing happening with the Philadelphia Phillies this season. Now, do they have one season left? Do they have three seasons left? I would say it's probably closer to one than three as far as what the nucleus of this team can do without totally making any wholesale changes. I like what they did by extending Cole Hamels for as long as they did, and they got Cliff Lee for the next couple of years. Halliday will eventually become a free agent, but yeah, this, this is a team that's certainly going to have to kind of retool itself every year before they feel it's time to rip the whole thing down. And I think the Phillies did the right thing last year, making a couple changes that they did by trading Victorino and trading Hunter Pence, as opposed to totally just re redoing the thing, similar to what, let's say, the New York Mets have done and has taken them a better part of the last five years to do. So I do think the Phillies are a team that certainly has something left. Another team I want to get into a little bit before we take our break for the uh, bottom part of the hour is, is the Los Angeles Dodgers. And the Los Angeles Dodgers are a team that kind of, uh, I don't think they're, they're considered the darlings of the sport by any stretch of the imagination. The new ownership group led by Magic Johnson and Stan Kasten has made no bones about the fact that they're willing to spend money. They're willing to acquire and sign and trade for the best players possible to get themselves to the next level and hopefully win another World Series. And you know, this is a team that certainly is not even done as far as what it's going to do over the course of this season, if they feel like they need a piece, they're going to go out there and get it. And that doesn't reside too well with baseball fans. And I'll tell you, the problem with the, 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 the fans and maybe people that cover the game, the way they're kind of being against the Dodgers, is because that's not the way people want to see teams win. Nobody is a fan of the kind of the kind of player the, the kind of teams that go out there and let's say buy themselves a championship. And that's what the Dodgers are essentially doing right now. They're doing what the Yankees did in the seventies. They're doing what some people say the Yankees tried to do for the better part of the the early part of the two thousand uh, decade. That now nobody wants that team that goes out there and just gets all the best players. They like to see teams develop. They like to see prospects come up. They like to see the future of the game kind of switch itself they like to see the parity they like to see teams kind of circle around where one team gets a shot and another team gets a shot and you see the development of this group and that group nobody likes to see the team that goes out there and just spends the money and that's what the Los Angeles Dodgers are doing right now and nobody likes to see that but I'll tell you this they have the talent they have the ability and I, I will tell you this I do think that they're going to go out there and win the National League Western Division this year and you, you add a guy like Zach Greinke to a staff that's got Clayton Kershaw. You add Hun Jin Ru, who I think is going to be a very underrated pitcher this year. He's going to go out there, and he has the makeup to go out there and throw 200 innings. And if this team scores runs in an offense led by Matt Kemp and Adrian Gonzalez and a healthy Hanley Ramirez, hopefully in a couple months, there's going to be games to win. And I think that they, they have addressed. I know it's not in a way that people like it, 
I, I don't think people like to see people address their needs by going out there and throwing money at players. But the Dodgers, in my opinion, did the right thing as far as addressing their rotation, addressing their bullpen, and giving themselves depth over the course of their major league lineup. And I could see it. I could doing what it needs to do to get themselves to the next level. And I think that if, if this tra the trading deadline comes up and there's a player out there that the Dodgers feel like they could use, they're going to go out there and get them. And I think, I think they do have some pieces in the minors. I don't know if they're going to use this guy Puig at all, uh, the, the outfielder that they sent down in the minors. Uh, they obviously have an overcrowded outfield with Kemp and Ethier and Carl Crawford, and maybe they make a move with a guy like Ethier or Crawford. Obviously, Crawford's going to be tough to trade. But maybe they put this guy Puig in there. Maybe they free themselves up some money. But I don't think money is an issue with the Los Angeles Dodgers. And I've said this before. This is why it resonates with fans and people that cover baseball so badly. They don't like to see that team go out there and spend the money. But you know what? Fans of particular teams, I'm sure the Los Angeles Dodgers fans, there aren't too many of them that are complaining about the way the Dodgers have handled this situation. If you're a fan of a baseball team, you want to see your favorite team spend. And I don't care if you're a fan of the Mets or the Astros or the, the Montreal Expos. Whatever your, your team is or was, you want to see the team put the best players on the field to give them the best chance to win. So I think it's a little hypocritical when we get into and we talk about the Dodgers and we say, hey, they're just throwing money out there. Hey, why would anybody want to root for them? Because as an individual fan, you want what's best for your team. You want the best players possible. And the Dodgers did that. And, and I don't know what it's going to end up making. Are they going to win a World Series with this team? It, it obviously didn't look too good for them last season. It didn't. And, and you, can't, you can't deny the fact that it did not work out for them last season. But... They, do, they did add Granke. They did add Rue. They upgraded their bullpen a little bit, bringing back um, Brandon League and then signing J.P. Howell. I do think the depth of this team is, is a little bit better than it was last season. And maybe you give these players a little more time to kind of gel with each other. And, and I, I do think that the Dodgers right now, if you want to put, put a gun to my head, say what team is better, the Dodgers or the Giants, I don't care that the Giants won the World Series last year and two of the last three years and have Buster Posey and have Matt Cain and, and everything great that you could say about the San Francisco Giants. I, I think that's all great, but I think the Dodgers are a better team right now. And, and, I don't, I, and, and listen, only time's going to tell. You know, maybe the Dodgers go out there and win 80 games this year. Maybe they go out there and win 100. You know, we're not going to know. But you tell, me, you tell me what team is better right now. I do really strongly feel that the Los Angeles Dodgers are the best team right now. And I think, I think this is something that, you know, we're going to see how it turns out. But listen, we're going to take a quick break, man. We'll be a lot more going on with the pass ball show after this. And maybe 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 this. Yes, I'm repeating myself. Have you been thinking about household renovations? Why not come down to Princeton Kitchen and Cabinet located in nearby Plainsboro, New Jersey? We offer a wide range of goods and services for the interior. We have solid wood cabinets as well as carpets and hardwood flooring from the top brands at competitive prices. Get a new set of temps. 
solid wood flooring starts at just $225 per square foot. We provide all installation. Princeton Kitchen and Cabinet also has 10 years of experience in contractor work. If you're looking to finish that basement or redo your bathroom, look no further. We offer all electrical, plumbing, and finishing work at the most competitive prices. We will even come to your home to give you a free estimate. Call 609-378-5952 or learn more at our website at www.princetonkitchen.net. Come visit us at our 660 Plainsboro Road in Plainsboro, New Jersey location. Get all your work done at Princeton Kitchen and Cabinet. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, this is John Pielli finishing up what's been a banging show here as we are in the first week of Major League Baseball season. We could talk about the Astros and their one win. But I think one thing that was very interesting about that series with the Texas Rangers was you Darvish the other day. And you Darvish did a phenomenal job coming within one out of a perfect game. And we talked all last year about all the no hitters and the perfect games and really what has happened in the changing of baseball right now and you know the fact that you know we may be seeing a little bit of a renaissance when it comes to the game coming back to the pitcher and of course we talk about 1968 being the year of the pitcher Bob Gibson uh, Denny McLean all that and obviously that game progressed back to the hitters through part of the 70s and of course got you know hit a climax towards the end of the 90s and the early part of 2000s with the steroids and everything but now it looks like the game has kind of gotten back to the pitcher and we look at what's happened with uh, you know guys like you know Felix Hernandez Matt Cain the upper echelon pitchers in Major League Baseball ha- ha- has just gotten to a point where it's, it's it's been that damn good I mean the the quality of starting pitchers I mean if you want to compare right now to what you saw maybe in the 80s when you had a, a young Roger Clemens a young Dwight Gooden of course the Hall of Famers like the Seavers and the Gaylord Perrys and you know, Steve Carlton's and all those guys who pitched, you know, at that point, I think you could really say that the game right now, as far as its starting pitchers, are probably as good, if not better, than at any point during that time. And we're talking about, you know, 1980 to 1985. I'm not going to go crazy. I'm not going to get into to the 70s where I think there, there were better pitchers. You, you get into a guy like Bob Gibson who pitched in the late 60s, early 70s, and, and some of the guys like that, the Marischals of the world. I think that was that was a certain generation where the pitchers were really that superior to the hitters. But if you look at home run hitters now, and obviously steroids has had a lot to do with it. Hitters aren't going out there hitting, you know, close to 60 home runs anymore. And, you know, a guy like Joey Bats about three years ago hits, you know, 54 home runs. And you got guys who are hitting somewhere in the 40s. And your average league home run champion is hitting about 40 home runs now. And it wasn't, you know, obviously it wasn't the case five years ago. It wasn't the case even longer than that where you had guys going out there hitting, you know, in the mid-50s, uh, you know, obviously, you know, hurt, hitting ridiculous numbers like McGuire and Sosa and Barry Bonds when they hit, you know, in the 60s and 70. And, of course, Bonds capping it off with 73. 
But I, I do think the game has kind of changed a little bit, and it's not all about the lack of steroids in the game. I think steroids does have something to it or something to do with it, but the quality of young pitchers. And I don't know if it's all about the way these pitchers are being brought up or developed. I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I, but I, I think you're looking at the, the quality of arms. And you could start out with a guy like Justin Verlander, a guy like Clayton Kershaw. You talked about Matt Cain, uh, Roy Halladay, you, you know, the, maybe, maybe last year and into this year notwithstanding. But the quality of the top starting pitcher has, has certainly improved over the last five seasons. And, and, and I, I think it's not the steroids completely that has changed the complexion of the, pitter, the hitter to pitcher thing. Because I think the game is switching towards where the top pitchers, and not, not all pitchers, and I'm not saying the pitchers have the advantage over all the hitters right now. Because you, you look at the way that the game has essentially become a six-inning game. You're talking about the six innings, three runs, being a quality start, and all that crap. That, that has certainly changed the game in favor of the hitter. And you look at you know teams' bullpens, where you got the twelve the twelve man pitching staff, seven relievers. If you if you get a pitcher's pitch count up too high through five or six innings, you go into the front of the bullpen, where you generally have the last guy to make your pitching staff. And hitters obviously have the advantage going up against a guy that may not even be a major league type pitcher. So that's where I think hitters have the advantage. But what I'm talking about is the upper echelon pitcher, the top pitcher in the game. Those pitchers have the advantage over the great hitters. And you could put up any top player in the game right now, whether it's Matt Kemp, whether you talk about uh, you know anybody, Adrian Gonzalez, uh, Ryan Braun, uh, uh, obviously Prince Fielder, Miguel Cabrera, Mike Trout, all the top hitters in the game, I think would be at a disadvantage going up against the top pitchers of the game. And, and it's not all of them. I, and I think if you wanted to rank maybe the top percentage of pitchers that I'm talking about, it's probably the top 10%. You know, it's, it's the guys in the category of a Verlander or a Strasburg or even a CC Sabathia. And that's probably the, the, low, the lowest part of the, of the top pitchers that I'll go to, a David Price. You know, guys like that who are at the absolute top, I think they could own any hitter in this game. So chew on that for a little bit. But, you know, what we always want to do here on the Pass Ball Show is hit up a little bit of what's going on in this date in baseball history. And, uh, you know, you talk about 1948. And, and I'll tell you something, this may, may you think it's funny, maybe you just think it's corny, but uh, Philadelphia Athletics manager Connie Mack, who in 1948 was 84 years old, challenged Washington Senators owner Clark, Clark Griffin, 78, to a foot race from home plate to first base. And they, they, they end up calling it a photo finish. But, you know, you can imagine, you know, two legends in the game, and obviously you look at Clark Griffin and everything he did for that Washington franchise and being the owner and having a stadium named after him and Connie Mack essentially being the Philadelphia Athletics for 50 years and obviously being the owner led to him being a manager there for 50 years. But, but I, I mean, I, I do find it interesting that those two older men and elder statesmen in the game had a foot race. But, you know, moving on, I don't think there's anything really to totally uh, mind-boggling that happened on this date in baseball history, but... You know, Tommy John ends up pitching for his 26th season, which at the time was a major league record, ends up being passed by Nolan Ryan on this date in 1989, getting the opening day start. And as we spoke with Don Slott earlier in the program, uh, he mentioned that it was Tommy John, the veteran at age 41, making the opening day start 
in his 26th season. And, you know, he ends up winning for, uh, you know, his, his 287th game, which, if I'm not mistaken, I think that was his last win. And I'm a, uh, don't worry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to definitely quote that either yes or no. But I believe he finished with 287 wins. I don't think he won another game after that. And uh, you know we'll have to we'll have to take a quick look at that. Yeah, bear with me here. Now he won one more game. I'm sorry, he won 288 games. So that was that was his second to last win as a major league pitcher, which I which I, I do find kind of kind of interesting. An opening day start in 1989 for the New York Yankees. And listen, it, it showed the state of that team. And unfortunately, it was a rebuilding time for them, where I think George Steinbrenner finally decided that you know maybe maybe he was going to take a suspension, which ended up leading, of course, to Stick Michael and Showalter and everybody kind of getting this team in the right direction. But Tommy John, at age 41, making his op- opening day start in 1989, was kind of a sign of where the New York Yankees had fallen after what was a terrible decade in the 1980s. And if you're a young baseball fan, if you're a young Yankee fan, with somewhere between the ages of 20 and 30, you've probably never seen the Yankees lose before. And I'm not talking about a single game, but I'm talking about a, 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 a season where they finish under 500. Or how about two seasons that they finish under 500? I mean, Joe Girardi's first season in 2008 was the only time the Yankees missed the playoffs. And prior to that, you know, they, they, they made the playoffs every year. And the last time they missed was 1993. So if you're, you're a Yankee fan, somewhere between 20 and 30, you've never seen the team lose before. And, and in, my, in my opinion, I don't know how the hell, you, you know, you, you, you understand baseball when you haven't seen your favorite team lose. And I'm not, listen, I'm not rooting for the Yankees to lose. I'm really not. Uh, to me, it's neither here nor there. I mean, I, I, I root for the Mets, but. And I don't say I root for the Yankees at all. I prefer them to lose, but I don't root for them to lose. The best thing for the New York Yankees, in my opinion, would be for them to take a step back this season. And the way things are set up, the way they didn't go out there and, let's say, uh, reinforce themselves offensively when they lost guys like Nick Swisher and Russell Martin and Raul Abanez, and you know, not having A-Rod for this season, the injuries to Sashara and Granderson, uh, listen, uh, all the pieces are there for this to be a disappointment. And I think the best thing that could happen to the New York Yankees franchise is for them to miss the playoffs this year. And not, not to say that I'm rooting for it, but it would be best, I think, for this franchise going forward to take a step back and get off its high horse and get off the expectations that every year they're, they're going to go in and go out and make it into, into the postseason regardless of what ends up happening. I, I don't I don't think that should be that should be a given, and it never is. And I think a lot of Yankee fans and people that cover the team have taken this for granted. I really feel like they've taken it for granted, looking at it for as, as no matter what we do, we always have the best players. They're going to make the right moves, and they're making the playoffs every single season. And in my opinion, I just I just I just don't I don't believe in that philosophy. I think you have to look at yourself as an organization and say that you're human, that it's possible that not only can you not make the playoffs, but you can have a losing season. And once that happens, I think a lot of people, a lot of people that follow the New York Yankees are, are going to realize that it's not such a given. And yes, you look at the his, 
historical franchise of this team. All the World Series that they won from 23, 27, 28, 32, 36, 37, 38, 39, 41, 43, 47, 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, 56, 58, 61, 62, 77, 78, 96, 98, 99, 2000, and 2009. All those World Series championships, you understand that most fans were not here for all of them. And the history is great. But you know what happens even in all that history is the fact that there's going to be a season or two that you're not going to win. And, and, and what, what do you do from that? You, you obviously have to have a gut check. You obviously have to look at the, the perspective of the franchise and where it's going in the near future. And the fact that the Yankees may not make the playoffs this year could turn out to be the best thing for the franchise going forward. Because I do think that they'll look at all the money that's coming off the books for the one-year contracts that they all, the, all the players signed to. And they could take a step back and realize that it's not given and they're not going to make the playoffs every year, that they have to make the right moves and take this franchise from the, from the success that they've had into the next generation and the next generation of Yankee teams. Well, let's be honest. You look at the Yankees' farm system, and I know Mason Williams looks like a really good prospect, and we talk, we can talk about the killer bees all you want. I don't think there's really anything left with them. But uh, the Yankees' immediate future, as far as bringing in younger players, does not look so hot. And it may be a situation where they have to go out there and do what the Dodgers did over the past couple seasons and spent. And I think a lot of that's going to have to do with the money that's coming off the books you know, next year and how Brian Cashman wants to allocate it. But the Yankees are very very serious about staying under the $189 million luxury tax threshold. And I think that's going to affect them in a, in, a, in, a, in a positive way maybe to some point, but also in a negative way because maybe they're not going to be able to make that midseason acquisition unless it's a guy like Justin Morneau, who's a free agent at the end of the season. Maybe they can make a trade with the Minnesota Twins, but the Twins are not going to want to give him away for nothing. And the Yankees are going to have to give up some of that so-called future and a farm system, which I don't think is that great. But the Twins are not going to give Justin Morneau away for nothing. So a lot to chew on with the Yankees. And listen, two games, three games, there's no reason to go for a game crazy over it. You lost the first two games to the Red Sox. You got Andy Pettit pitching tonight. You know, all, all you need is a win to kind of right things a little bit. And guys like Travis Hafner and Vernon Wells have been hitting a little bit. Maybe they could fill some voids in that lineup. And the Yankees are going to look essentially to tread water over the next couple weeks, maybe into a month or two, until guys like Curtis Granderson and Mark Teixeira come back. And once they come back, if the Yankees feel like they're in a good enough position, I think things are going to be all right with them. But listen, if they get off to a terrible start, and I'm not talking 0-2. I'm talking about, let's say, uh, 8 to 10 games under 500 after the first month or two of the season. If it's going in that direction, then I'm curious to see what they end up doing. I'm curious to see if they end up deciding uh, on, on maybe going, uh, going crazy when it comes to uh, maybe, maybe making some wholesale changes. And I don't think Robinson Cano is getting traded. I think that's crazy to suggest. But I, I think the Yankees could potentially look to 2014 if the beginning of 2013 looks, doesn't look so hot. I think you could compare it a lot to what the Philadelphia Phillies went through last season. And they, and they, they obviously had the high expectations. Everybody had them winning. The, the National League Eastern Division. And injuries ended up taking over. 
And after the injuries took over, the Phillies were in a position where they found themselves a lot of games behind the Washington Nationals. And they realized that winning the National League East was not a foregone conclusion anymore. And rather than fight it out to the end, they ended up conceding a little bit. And the concession ended up resulting in them playing some better baseball. But I'm curious to see if the Yankees do the same thing, if they're that far behind as this season ends up going on. So that, that, that's certainly some things that, I, that I'd, I'd like to see how it happens. But, of course, the Yankees are going to have to get off to a bad start up to a certain point. But um, right now we're going to dial out. And uh, like I said, I always love dialing out here because you never know how it's going to turn out. Uh, I could get a voicemail. I could get somebody's wife. I, you never know what ends up happening here. But right now we're going to try to dial out here. We're going to get a hold, hopefully, of former Major League outfielder Kevin Mensch. And, you know, we're going to see how this ends up, turns out. So, once again, this is John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. And, once again, we're going to try to dial out here. We'll see how this turns out. And, actually, there you go. We, you hear the dial tone. Always an interesting Hello? spot. Hey, is this Kevin? Yes. Hey, how you doing? John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Thanks for having a couple minutes today. Yeah, no problem. Ah, man, no problem. First of all, let's start off. We get into, uh, obviously, I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times. Uh, wh- what, what's, what's the whole perception that you have about being known as Shrek? You know, with your big hat size, the big head, the whole thing. Oh, I don't know. It's good. I guess it gives the kids and fans something to relate to when it comes <laughs> to that. It's something that, uh, you know, everybody always brings it up now as a joke, and, you know, because I've been done playing. But, you know, it just helps them just, uh, you know, I guess – because it keeps it kind of etched in their memory. <laughs> now, Kevin, of course, you had a, a pretty good career. You had a chance to play a lot for the Texas Rangers, a couple of 20-home run seasons. Tell us a little bit about your development, how you came up in a, in a Rangers organization, and you know, culminating with your Major League debut in 2002. We actually had a pretty good draft class. Um, my year that we got, it was Colby Lewis, our first pick. Hank Blaylock was one. Um, myself, Aaron Harang, uh, and that was our first five picks I think that year wow. five of the first seven picks that year so I mean we had we all came through the organization um, Travis Happer was another guy that we all came through with um, so uh, Nick Regilio was another guy he only pitched a little bit in the big leagues but uh, it was just you know, just being around the same guys made it the transition a lot a lot easier because it was always a competition but a fun competition around the guys just having fun but you know pushing each other to uh, try and get to that next level and uh, we all you know it's a good thing we all at one point I think it was we had the oldest guy may have been like 30 years old in the big leagues when Tishera came up and, and Nick's and those guys. So, I mean, we had the, some young core guys that were, uh, you know, just were, that played well together. Yeah, now, now t- tell, tell me a little bit about this because I, I do find it interesting that, you know, you, you were you obviously or essentially had a chance to kind of go up through the minor league system with the same type of players. And I'm, I, you know, a lot of those players end up coming up with you to the majors. Now, tell, tell us a little bit about, you know, you know the cohesion between – you know, a lot of players, you're, you're, you're at the you know, A-ball level, you go up to double-A, you go up to triple-A, you go up to the majors, and you're playing with the same players. You know, tell us about how, how that you know, certainly is an advantage you know, against other, other players that come up to the majors and may not be familiar with some of the other type of players that are around them. It just, it just helps with, with the clubhouse where it starts just being, you know, you're around the same guys for, for nine months. I mean, you have to develop some kind of cohesion between guys. If not, I mean, that's going to be nine months of hell. 
So it's one of those things where you know we, we knew how each other was, what you know what buttons to push or what buttons we could push with each other. And at the same time, we knew when to back off. Um, but then once the season ended, you didn't want to talk to anybody for a few months. And then it came the season came right back around. You know, you're with the same guys. It was just one of those things where it just kind of everybody falls into their role. It's not something where everybody's trying to learn uh, new guys. Yeah, absolutely. Once again, this is John Pialium here, former Major League outfielder Kevin Mensch. Now. You know, tell us a little bit about, you know, you, you end up kind of, you know, making your debut in 2002. You played 110 games that year, finished seventh in the AL and Rookie of the Year voting. To, to tell us a little bit about that season and, you know, kind of moving forward at age 24. Um, it was, well, I had, uh, I had a pretty good spring. spring training. I think I led the team in home runs and everything, but with the guys we had, we had Paul Everett, Juan Gonzalez, Gabe Kapler, Kellenado, Rusty Greer. So, I mean, my options were pretty limited. But I knew I was going, going to head back to AAA. It was one of those things where I just, uh, was just waiting for opportunity. And I think it happened the second or third game of the year where I got the call up. Uh, got a chance to be, you know, in the big league with, with guys like Alex Rodriguez, Palmero, Pudge Rodriguez, and uh, and Juan. So guys that you know had established themselves at that level and you know had the you know the, uh, the reputation of being you know just tremendous baseball players and, and learning from them and. You know, just just watching how they handle themselves and, and some other guys too. Kenny Rogers is a good friend of mine, and he's another guy that uh, you know that, that took care of me and looked out for me. But at the same time, showed me you know how to handle myself and, and uh, how to carry myself just as as a baseball player and as as a professional. Yeah, no question about it. And now now I want to focus on this 2002 team for a little bit because if you look at the amount of talent, and you kind of touched on it a little bit from having you know Pudge Rodriguez, Rafael Palmero, A Rod. Uh, you know, other guys like, you know, Juan Gonzalez. I know he wasn't the Juan Gonzalez of, let's say, like uh, like about four or five years before. But having all that talent around you, are you a little surprised that you, you, that team wasn't able to win as many games as it did? Good pitching beats good hitting. And that's just one thing that, that you know, that we hadn't developed for a while. They could try and, you know, try to ease some of that, but that didn't really didn't pan out. So it was one of those things where, I mean, we could hit with anybody. We just couldn't. It was one of those where we just – you know, just get behind too much and, and couldn't battle back. And it was, it's unfortunate, you know, it's the, the talent that we had, I mean, you look at those guys that just trying to play catch-up almost almost every night. Yeah, so it was essentially a situation where the pitching just kind of couldn't keep you in the games. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's just an unfortunate thing. And now, you know, that's one thing that they really harped on the last few years around here is uh, bringing in, you know, starting pitching guys that can, you know, that can pitch in this ballpark. And people always said that guys were scared to come here and pitch and, you can pitch, you can pitch. It doesn't matter. I mean, Kenny Rogers did it. Now, Kenny, I think he pitched, I think, three different times here. So, I mean, he, he knew how to pitch here. It's just one of the things, like anything else. Why would you want to go to Coors Field or go to Simpsons Bank where the ball just flies? <laughs> no, absolutely. It probably wasn't as extreme as playing, you know, say, a Coors Field. But, you know, you know, as you move forward, you obviously get a chance a couple of years in uh, 2004, 2005 to kind of be the, the everyday guy. You kind of still kind of moved around. You played all three outfield positions. But, you know, tell us a little bit about your your, your better power seasons in the majors in 2004 and 2005. It's, it just comes down to, to comfort and just, and just um, having a bat. So I think the year, those years I had 550 at bats. That's the kind of person I was. I needed to play every day to get into a groove. Um, some guys are, are wired that way, and some guys are wired to come off the bench. I mean, look at Lenny Harris. He made a career out of coming off the bench, and it's just that's just how that's how I was wired. So it was I got given the opportunity. I mean, I could drive in runs and, and put up numbers. It was just, uh, and we had we had some great guys, you know, around us. I mean, I, 
behind Soriano for, for three years. Uh, he had a kid, he had some really good years. Gary Matthews Jr., DeLucci, uh, Hank, uh, Michael Young, Barajas. I mean, we had some guys that could hit it. No question. Still couldn't, with, with the pitching, just couldn't play, play catch up. Yeah, now you end up in 2006. You're part of that trade uh, with with the Brewers for uh, Carlos Lee and uh, of course Nelson Cruz. Uh, you're you're unfortunately un, unable to keep up with the same pace that you were at prior to when you know when you were we were playing in Texas. What what happened after you ended up moving on to Milwaukee? It's it's, it's a comfort thing. Just like any business or any situation anybody's in, you know, you're around the same guys, you know them, you know the fans, you know what to expect from just from the atmosphere and, and living here. You know, helps it. And all of a sudden, you know, pack your bags. Hey, you got to go. You know, and all of a sudden, you've got to learn a whole new league, uh, new pitchers, uh, new players, and it's it's just a lot to take in. It's just like I said, another thing where you know, guys can some guys can handle it, some guys can't. And I just that first year, I just I couldn't settle in at the end. Uh, the next year, I had a fresh spring, but just wasn't given the chance to to, to uh, start every day. Uh, Jeff Jenkins and I platooned, and we uh, I mean, we had fun doing that. But it was one of those things where you know, you go out and you know, three, four hits a night and wouldn't play for a week. Now, like, you think it's more, it's, it certainly is, I, I guess, had to do with your, your comfort. And do you, do you think it, do you think it's something that, that, that is common amongst players that let's say like a, a player in your situation that grew up, you know, with, with all these players through a farm system, do you, do you think it's the norm that a player could uh, drop off and maybe not feel as comfortable once they're moved outside of that organization? I think so. It's just, I probably, I mean, uh, a lot of guys, you know, if you're a high director, you're going to be given every opportunity by an organization. So you know they're going to stick by you. So that's one thing where you have that comfort of knowing, you know, you're the same coaches, uh, you know, going through an organization. And, you know, it might be different for a guy who's bounced around from organization to organization. And then finally, you know, gets to the big league where, hey, I'm used to this. I'm, you know, I don't bounce it around. As opposed to somebody who has, you know, just, you know, one track mind where this is how it is and all of a sudden your, your whole world changes. You know, in an instant. Do you think you got a fair enough chance to uh, to showcase your talents in Milwaukee? I think I, I, I thought I could have still played every day, um, you know. But they just I just wasn't given that opportunity that year, and um, you know got released, came out, came to spring training here. I thought I had a chance to had a good spring, and I had an option left. So you know, once you have an option left, you're kind of you know last man standing. Um, so did that, and like I said, never got a chance to get back and play on an everyday basis. And of course, once again, this is John Piel. I'm here, former major league outfielder Kevin Mensch. Now, I'll put you on the spot here. I don't know if you could. I don't know if you could think of this off the top of your head. Maybe, maybe, maybe it'll take a little thought. Did you have a moment? Let's say, like, like that you think was the the best moment of your career. Let's say a home run off of a certain pitcher in a spot or a situation like that. What do you think was your greatest moment during your professional baseball career? I mean, you know, records and stuff are. I'm meant to be broken. I think probably the best one would be the, the 50,000th hit in Rangers history. <laughs> Something that'll never be broken. It's one of those, you know, like a milestone for I me. Mean, the home run stuff and uh, well, records will always be broken, but that's something that'll never be, you know, taken away. No, nobody will ever get the 50,000th 50, hit again, huh? Now, now, listen. As as you end up, you know, finishing your career up, did you ever did you did, did you feel like you accomplished everything you were trying to do over the course of your major league career, or you feel like you did, yeah. you had a little more left when you ended up hanging it up? You know, it's, you know, you, you know, I don't regret not playing in the World Series or just in the postseason. But uh, you know, a lot you see a lot of guys hang on, just keep hanging on because they want 
you know, they, they get the taste of it, and they just want to keep hanging on, they'll go, you know, go to Minor League camp and you know, a couple, you know, some call-ups during the year and, and, and live that way. I just, you know, just, you know, the writing was on the wall. I just, you know, made my peace with it and just and, and moved on. I've just been in three years now. So it's, um, you know, it's just one of those things where, you know, I, I, I played as hard as I could. That's one thing a lot of everybody comes up to me and tells me, they say, hey, you know, we love the way you played the game. And I would say, I hope, I hope you enjoyed yourself. You know, when I was out there, I was trying to do it as best I could. And, um, and like I said, it just it was one of those things where I just, they were, you know, younger and cheaper. So it was one of those things where I just had a chance just to uh, um, just stand it the way I wanted to, well, on my own terms and nobody else's. Nah, that's the best way to do it, man. Listen, Kevin, I want to thank you for having some time today. Appreciate you being part of the program. Hopefully I can speak to you sometime in the near future. Absolutely. Anytime, Jeff. All right. Take care, man. That was Kevin Mensch, and, uh, you know, on behalf of Kevin Mensch, I want to thank Kevin. I want to thank Don Slott. I want to thank April Weitzman. I also want to thank Mike Hargrove. Great show today, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We'll be back with you next week, same time, same place. Hope you guys enjoy yourself.